1: Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings.
0: Movie musicals are back in 1961. Well, okay, maybe not really. But that year, there was hope that singing and dancing in the movies was still something that brought the public into movie theaters and droves. If you were alive in 1961 and a fan of the movie musical, this was definitely good news. Thank West Side Story for the feeling that musicals could still have a great life at the movie theater. I'm sure you've seen the 1961 version that was an adaptation of the hit 1957 Broadway musical that had closed just 15 months earlier and was starting a popular national tour. Everyone raved about the production, and all the things that made the stage show great were mostly translated to the movie, including all the dancing. Almost all of the songs from the Broadway show were retained for the movie version, and I'm surprised that Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim, the composer and lyricist for the Broadway show, didn't write a new song for the movie version. If they had, that song would have certainly have been nominated for an Oscar and would have given West Side Story a then-record 12 nominations instead of a record-tying 11. But where would that new song have been put? I can't begin to imagine. I wouldn't advocate removing any of the songs that are in the movie to fit a new one. Perhaps Bernstein and Sondheim were asked to write a new song, but neither of them ever talked about that publicly. So, when West Side Story premiered in movie theaters in October 1961, songwriters breathed a sigh of relief that their original songs were not going to compete against a new one appearing in West Side Story. But Hollywood had to wonder if they were doing right by not making original musicals anymore, or at least original musicals that were done well. None of the top 50 films of 1961 were original musicals, and West Side Story was the only musical in the top 50. Two of the nominated songs this year appear in movies that ranked very high in box office gross, while the other three feature in films that barely made a blip in 1961. Let's start on a high note, if you will, and talk about the songs that came from the big money makers. Just remember that spoilers will be revealed in discussing these songs. The first nominee is from the epic biopic El Cid with Charlton Heston as Spanish soldier Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar. It's not a terrible bit of casting to have Charlton Heston playing a Spaniard. After all, he did play a Jewish man in Ben-Hur and it's probably for the best that he didn't try to have an accent. Sophia Loren is always made to look devastatingly beautiful, as she the woman who is loved by Rodrigo even after he kills her father to save his honor. The movie doesn't handle the switch between epic love story and epic historical biopic very well, and Heston has later said that he wished William Wyler, the man who directed him in Ben-Hur, had directed El Cid. The music of Ben-Hur was written by Hungarian composer Miklos Rocha who had moved to Hollywood in 1940 and became an American citizen shortly after that. In a short time, he had become a celebrated composer after winning the Oscar for his music for Hitchcock's Spellbound and was widely in demand. When historical films became the new trend in Hollywood in the 1950s, Rocha took charge for MGM as their in-house composer. Ben-Hur was his biggest assignment, requiring more than three hours of music, though about 30 minutes of it was cut from the film. After he won the Oscar for Ben-Hur, it was only natural that the producers would ask him to write the score for El Cid. Rocha delivered an Oscar-nominated score for El Cid, which gave him the opportunity to write a sumptuous love theme for Rodrigo and Ximen. It appears at various times throughout the film during the scenes between Heston and Loren, and I think its most beautiful appearance comes around the halfway mark when Rodrigo has been exiled for humiliating the new king of Spain she surprises him by asking him to come along, even though she had been harboring a lot of anger because of the whole father-killing thing.
2: If you come with me, my love. Since my love is not a man like other men, my life will not be like other lives.
3: It's only now, only now that I know how hard the road would have been without you.
0: Rocha had never been asked to write a song to go with the melodies of any film score he had composed, but now that composers such as Dmitry Tyomkin were getting lots of attention for the songs written for themes from their scores, Rocha was bound to be asked. Paul Francis Webster took the melody and created the song, which is just called Love Song from El Cid, and we have to wait until the film has ended to hear it, specifically in the portion called Exit Music which plays after the end shows up on screen. This is just like the music that plays nowadays during the end credits as people are leaving the theater, and in the case of this song, it's a way to reinforce the love theme that had been playing often and to put some lyrics to it. Webster tied it into the film, speaking of rose petals falling on the gray castle walls in Spain and how a dove can tame a falcon. That's how the subtitle of the song, The Falcon and the Dove, came about. El Sid made a lot of money, mostly because it was another epic starring Charlton Heston. After The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur, Heston was pretty much the king of the historical epics. But the long three-hour movie was not going to stick around much longer, and Heston had to branch out into other genres. Science fiction and disaster movies would become Heston's new playgrounds in the 1960s and 1970s, acting alongside people in ape makeup and trying to prevent planes from crashing. As for Miklos Rocha, this would be his first and only Oscar nomination for writing a song. It would also be his final Oscar nomination. Just like Charlton Heston, he found himself trying to adapt to the changing styles of Hollywood. He continued to write film scores for Hollywood films and international movies until his retirement in 1982. But none of those scores were able to match the intensity and popularity that his music enjoyed in the 1950s and early 1960s. If you're worried about the partnership that Paul Francis Webster had with Sammy Fain, don't worry. Fane had just taken a little break at the end of the 1950s to work in television and returned to animation. He wrote the main theme for the Western Wagon Train and contributed the popular song Once Upon a Dream for the Disney film Sleeping Beauty. A collaboration that resulted in two Academy Awards is not easily broken, and we'll hear more songs from Fain and Webster in future episodes of this podcast. Our next film was another blockbuster in 1961, and it cemented the relationship between director Blake Edwards and composer Henry Mancini. I spoke of the two of them in the previous episode, but I didn't really go into detail of how they met. Edwards had asked Mancini to score three of his movies in the 1950s, all done while Mancini was under contract at Universal. Edwards had created the TV show Peter Gunn and directed several episodes and he asked Mancini to write music for the show long before the first day of filming. Mancini was out of work at the time after being released from his Universal contract, so he said yes. He initially thought Peter Gunn was a show set in the Old West, and said yes before Edwards told him it was a detective show. Back in 1956, Mancini turned the TV theme music on its ear with his composition for Peter Gunn. Not only did the theme spawn a successful album release, but it was the first winner of the Grammy for Album of the Year in 1958. In 1959, Johnny Mercer felt that the theme Mancini had written for one episode was worthy of a full song. The character for which the music was written was called Joanna, and the music got some radio play. Mercer had never sought out a composer to ask to write lyrics for their melody before, but he swallowed his Southern pride. Mercer's career was in a bad patch in 1959, and desperate times called for desperate measures. Joanna the song didn't do well commercially, but Mancini must have liked what Mercer did for his music. That prompted him to reach out to Mercer to collaborate on the song Audrey Hepburn would sing in the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. Holly Golightly looks like a sophisticated New Yorker, especially when played by Audrey Hepburn. But she's really from a small town and the nominated song that she performs gives us a glimpse into the life she led before arriving in New York. The song, Moon River, talks of a body of water wider than a mile that inspired dreams and broke hearts. Because the river's waters go off to some part of the world that she longs to see, it inspires her to chase that rainbow. Holly plays a guitar while she sings, but we hear other instruments playing off-screen, which is always a little disconcerting, but has been the practice for many years. Holly's would-be lover, played by George Pappard, hears her singing while he's attempting to write a novel about her in his apartment above her.
2: Same Rainbows and
0: Mercer didn't have to dig deep to find the lyrics for Moon River. It's as if Holly Golightly is singing in Mercer's place about days gone by in a town that moved much more slowly than the bustle of the big city. But those lyrics weren't the first ones that Mercer wrote. He handed Mancini three versions, each one completely different. One of them had Holly singing in the first person about herself as a drifter with no dolly, no mama, no papa, Wherever I roam. Now, that's an okay lyric, but Mancini really clung to the second set of lyrics called Blue River, that is, until he and Mercer realized there was already a song with that title. According to Mercer's biography, Mercer was strongly attached to the oo sound in blue and wanted a word that had that connection. June worked, but so did Moon, and the rest of the song followed. Mercer has gone on record many times saying that My Huckleberry Friend is the best lyric he's ever written. It's been credited to his cousin Walter Rivers, who used to pick huckleberries with Mercer as a child. It also has a connection to Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, particularly their river adventures that Mark Twain had written. Mancini wrote in his autobiography about the feeling he got when Mercer first sang the lyrics to him. Quote, Every once in a while, you hear something so right that it gives you chills, and when he sang that Huckleberry Friend line, I got them. I don't know whether he knew what effect those words had or if it was just something that came to him, but it was thrilling. End quote. Once Audrey Hepburn sang Moon River on that windowsill, and yes, that is Audrey Hepburn's voice, the rest was history. Well, actually, not before Paramount executive Martin Racken suggested that the song be removed from the movie to keep things moving. What was told to Racken has been attributed to many, many people who probably want to lay claim to saying it. It might have been Audrey Hepburn. It might have been Blake Edwards. It might have been Johnny Mercer. But the fact is that someone told Rackin over my dead body, when it came to cutting the song out of the movie. Come to think of it, Mercer might not have been the one to fight for the song's inclusion. He said he was certain his streak of flops would continue with the song. It hasn't any future commercially, Mercer said to Mancini before the film's release in October 1961. That month, Mancini's instrumental version and Jerry Butler's vocal both reached number 11 at separate times on the Billboard charts. For the 22-year-old Butler... It was his second big single in a year and helped kickstart a singing and songwriting career that brought him a few more million-selling records in the 1960s. As for Mancini, it made him a bigger superstar than he had been for writing the Peter Gunn music. Very rarely is the composer also the top-billed performer on commercial recordings. When his instrumental record was released at the same time as Breakfast at Tiffany's, sales of his Peter Gunn album also got a bump. As if that weren't enough, Mancini and Mercer were nominated for the Grammy for Song of the Year, while Mancini's instrumental recording received four other nominations, including the prestigious Record of the Year. And remember that Frank Sinatra recording of the second time around that trounced Ben Crosby's original version from the 1960 movie High Time that I talked about in the last episode? Well, that version was released in 1961, and it was eligible to compete with Mancini for Record of the Year. We'll find out how those Grammy nominations worked out for Moon River later. For now, we're going to move on to the next song nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Song of 1961. Nominee number three is another Henry Mancini creation called Bachelor in Paradise from the Bob Hope movie of the same name. This time, Mancini was teaming up with Mac David for the comedy song that sets up the film's plot and the opening credits. Mancini's background as a jazz composer and arranger comes to the forefront of his music, which plays over some animation of Bob Hope eating the apple from the Garden of Eden, then posing as Cupid looking to hook up with Lana Turner. Mac David's lyrics also have an Adam and Eve reference, noting that a woman's plan to play romantic records and make cocktails turns her living room into a modern-day Garden of Eden where she wants to seduce a man into eating the proverbial apple.
2: When she
3: sighs her baby blue eyes embrace your face.
2: Lies all lies, what the lady wants is your
3: closet space. Dashler.
2: down low, Frankie's records and cocktails on the floor. You should know it's the Garden of Eden seen once more.
3: Adam!
0: turns out that Bob Hope's character really is named Adam, who is forced to pay off a massive debt to the IRS. He moves into a new housing development called Paradise, where he ends up as the only bachelor living there and falling for Lana Turner, who thankfully is not named Eve. As the only bachelor, all the married women in the community seem to fall for him too, creating some pretty good comedic moments. This was Bob Hope's first film not made with Paramount since the 1940s, and it appears that the change in studio didn't change Hope's comedic timing. He earned a Golden Globe nomination for the performance, though critics said the movie itself was nothing more than a fun frolic. Unlike Moon River, Henry Mancini didn't release any commercial recording of either the score or the song for Bachelor in Paradise right away. His compilation album, called Our Man in Hollywood, came out in January 1963 with new recordings of some of his compositions and the work of others. Bachelor in Paradise came out just a month after Breakfast at Tiffany's, which sort of overshadowed any work Mancini did on this film. But not enough to keep the theme song from giving Mancini three Oscar nominations in one year, the first time a composer earned that hat trick, one for Bachelor in Paradise, one for Moon River, and one for the score to Breakfast at Tiffany's. In the last episode, where I played songs nominated in 1960, I discussed the growing feud between composer Dmitry Tiomkin and lyricist Sammy Kahn. Both of them had differing views on the meaning of the Academy Awards and its impact on the music business. Both of them had songs nominated in 1960, and both lost. They were nominated again in 1961, giving us another showdown between the two. Sammy Kahn's nomination came, of course, with Jimmy Van Heusen for the title song for Pocket Full of Miracles. This movie is a comedy starring Betty Davis as a poor woman selling apples in New York who needs Glenn Ford's help looking like a rich woman when her daughter arrives from Spain. There are a couple other plot points that don't really warrant mentioning here, but that's probably why the movie needed to be more than 2 hours long. The story could have been told in about 90 minutes, but it's interesting to see Glenn Ford doing broad comedy and to see Betty Davis looking poor and disheveled. As for the title song, it barely makes its appearance in the film at the end of the opening credits. The first part of the opening credits introduces us to Betty Davis's Annie using music from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker and various Christmas songs to set up the scene. It's not that the song Pocket Full of Miracles isn't a nice way to close out the opening credits, but if it had not appeared, I don't think it would have lowered the prestige of the movie. It only plays for 50 seconds, making it the shortest Oscar-nominated song in the first 28 years of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences over the song Linda, which was exactly one minute long. Sammy Kahn was very hesitant to write a song called Pocket Full of Miracles. He says in his memoir, I Should Care, that he felt it was too close to the title of a song Jimmy Van Heusen wrote years ago with Johnny Burke called Pocket Full of Dreams. Khan didn't want anyone comparing the two songs, but Van Heusen said that as one of the writers of Pocket Full of Dreams, that Khan had permission to write a song called Pocket Full of Miracles. A children's chorus performs the song, which is an unusual choice because there are no children in the movie. To help with Van Heusen's melody, Kahn adjusted a few words to make them fit. Practicality becomes P-racticality, doesn't becomes D-usn't, and so on. It kind of works when a group of kids are singing it. When it came time to make the commercial recording, it was only natural that Kahn and Van Heusen would offer it first to Frank Sinatra. Unlike last year's The Second Time Around, there was no competition for Sinatra when this record was released in January 1962. Sinatra's recording of Pocketful of Miracles did barely better than The Second Time Around, ranking as high as 34th on the Billboard Hot 100 in late January, just in time for the Oscar nominations. Sinatra's record extended the song to two and a half minutes, and kept the children's chorus as Sinatra's backup.
1: Practicality D doesn't interest me. Love the life that I lead. I've got a pocket full of miracles. And with a pocket full of miracles One little miracle a day Is all I need Tea rubble's more or less be the me, I guess When the sun doesn't shine But there's that pocket full of miracles And with a pocket full of miracles the world's a bright and shiny apple that's mine all mine I hear sleigh bells ringing smack in the middle of May I go around like there's snow around I feel so good it's Christmas every day Lee I've a carousel fear as I can tell. And I'm riding for free So if you're down and out of miracles I've got a pocket full of miracles And there'll be miracles enough for you In the middle of May I go around like there's snow around I
3: feel so good, it's Christmas every day
1: and Lee, I've so a yeah, carousel, so fear as, as, I, am, as, as uh, I can tell hello, And I'm riding I'm for free
3: right, I've got a pocket full of miracles
1: da But da da if I da had da to pick a miracle miracle of all is you and me
0: Let's talk about the fifth nominated song of 1961, which on the surface is a love song but deep down is anything but. Town Without Pity mocks the people in the town who make fun of people who dare to dream or are in love. It's probably the saddest love song out there, next to High Noon, which was written by the same two men who wrote Town Without Pity. Dmitry Tiomkin and Ned Washington's fifth Oscar-nominated song together incorporates a jazz feel to the song with a sound that is deeply rooted in the 1960s. That's good because the film itself is set in 1960s Germany, where four American soldiers are on trial for raping a girl. I don't need to say that they allegedly did it because we sort of see it happen on screen, and the four men basically admit it when they first speak to their lawyer, played by Kirk Douglas. This is Douglas's first movie after his iconic role in Spartacus, and it's a tricky role. Douglas's Steve Garrett hates defending these four men, but it's his job. The movie was made mostly with international money, produced in part by Walter Mirisch's production company. Mirisch's company also was involved in West Side Story, and that's where a lot of the marketing money went, instead of the hard-hitting Town Without Pity. That's the only way to explain why West Side Story, a landmark and fantastic film in its own right, got 11 Oscar nominations, and Town Without Pity's only nomination was for the title song. So let's talk about that title song. It's coming from a jukebox in a bar where those four American soldiers are having a drink before they encounter the girl and rape her. As they walk out of the bar, the song continues as the opening credits play. Song's theme applies to the girl who was raped and the boy who she has been seeing. As the trial grows to its conclusion, it's clear that the residents of the town change their views from defending the two young lovers to ostracizing them based on court testimony that the girl was somewhat flirtatious and possibly asking for the soldiers to take advantage of her. And when she is found dead from suicide, it's even more clear that the town takes no pity on her or her family. After listening to the song, I felt that a better title might have been City Without Pity. The rhyming scheme for that seems more obvious, but perhaps Ned Washington was already told that the film title would be Town Without Pity, and he had to use that in the lyric. Though I would have liked to know what Washington would have produced with the title City Without Pity, I like the lyrical exercise that Town Without Pity creates. The owl sounds in town and without create a rhyme in adjoining words that is not common. It's actually called assonance. And if Ned Washington was forced to use town without pity, he did a good job with it lyrically. The singer of town without pity is 21-year-old Gene Pitney, who was in his first year as a singer and having a great deal of success. His recording of Town Without Pity got as high as number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, played quite often on the radio during the period just before the music branch was filling out their Oscar nomination ballots. The movie was not a big draw for moviegoers, but many of the nominated songs of 1961 were not from popular films, so each song was not judged purely on its movie's success. The fact that Music Branch members were required to view clips of the songs as they appeared in the movie helped each song's chances of securing the nomination. At the top of the Billboard Hot 100 chart when Tom Without Pity reached number 13 was The Twist by Chubby Checker, having spent three weeks so far at number one. That song knocked the Tokens' famous version of The Lion Sleeps Tonight off the top spot and surging on the chart on its way to almost knocking Chubby Checker off the post was Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love, which was written for the film Blue Hawaii. When the Oscar nominations were announced in February 1962, Elvis fans were probably upset that none of the songs from his latest film made the list of song nominees. But the title song Blue Hawaii was a hit for Bing Crosby back in 1937 for the film Waikiki Wedding, that featured the Oscar-winning song Sweet Leilani, so it couldn't be nominated for original song. As for Can't Help Falling in Love, its melody had its roots in a French song from 1784. As far as pop music goes, that wasn't a concern for Elvis fans, but it made a difference when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was vetting all songs submitted for nomination consideration and didn't make it eligible. I want to mention the official debut of a new songwriting team that was making their mark on Hollywood in 1961. Brothers Richard and Robert Sherman had signed an exclusive contract with the Walt Disney Studio that year, and their first big assignment was to write three songs for the Haley Mills live-action comedy The Parent Trap. The film was a big success, and Mills even recorded one of the songs, Let's Get Together, for commercial release. It was so well liked that it broke into the top 10 on the Billboard charts. But that wasn't enough for an Oscar nomination. Not even good enough to get through the first round of nominations voting.
3: Come on now, let's compromise. You give a little, I'll give a little. Come on, let's get together. That's it!
0: Branch, as always, goes crazy for a love song, and they liked the song For Now, For Always from The Parent Trap. That's the song that the parents of the two long-lost twins played by Haley Mills fell in love with back in the day, and one day during a walk in the park, Maureen O'Hara reminiscence about that song and performs part of it. It's not enough to really get the gist of it, and I wonder if the full version on the soundtrack album is what enticed voters to get it on the list of the top ten vote-getters after preliminary Oscar nomination voting. But it wasn't enough to get the Sherman Brothers onto the list of nominees for 1961. The Guns of Navarone took a page from the epic movie The Alamo the previous year, writing a quasi-love song and a ballot title song. Both got past the first round of voting, but not through to the final five. Dimitri Tiomkin and Paul Francis Webster wrote the theme song for The Alamo, which is why the theme song for The Guns of Navarone about a group of soldiers taking down a German fortress in World War II, sounds so familiar. Tiomkin was using the same template he used to great success nine years earlier with High Noon, but by 1961, the music branch seemed to be a bit tired of it. On March 5, 1962, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association finally decided to recognize movie songs, handing out its first award for Best Song. They didn't bother with listing any nominees, giving the award flat out to Town Without Pity. It's not that the Foreign Press Association didn't listen to other songs. El Cid, Pocket Full of Miracles, and Bachelor in Paradise had been nominated or won in other categories. This would be the only year that the Best Song Golden Globe Award doesn't list any nominees. The five Oscar-nominated songs were performed live on the Oscar telecast. Gene Pitney was the only original performer to introduce his nominated song, Town Without Pity, to the audience at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium and to the national TV audience. Anne Margaret, who made her film debut in Pocketful of Miracles as Betty Davis' daughter, made her first appearance on the Oscar telecast singing Bachelor in Paradise. She made the most of her performance, posing seductively in her tight gown and getting probably the biggest applause any song performance had ever gotten at the Oscars. It should have been a no-brainer that Ann-Margaret would sing Pocketful of Miracles, but that song was performed by Goji Grant. Johnny Mathis sang the love song from El Cid, and Andy Williams sang Moon River. The press went wild for Ann-Margaret, calling her sexy, exciting, and alluring. Others proclaimed that she should sing every nominated song in all future Oscar shows. And that was the official launch of Ann-Margaret's Hollywood career. The score awards were handed out quite early in the show, and it was then that Henry Mancini won the Oscar for writing the original score for Breakfast at Tiffany's, exactly one week before turning 38 years old. Keeping his acceptance speech short, he just thanked the Academy and Blake Edwards. He didn't have any more to say when Debbie Reynolds announced that Moon River won the Oscar for Best Song. Johnny Mercer flashed his gap-toothed smile and thanked Audrey Hepburn, and Andy Williams. Johnny Mercer would have many more reasons to thank Andy Williams in the later part of 1962. Williams released an album called Moon River and Other Great Movie Themes and included a performance of Moon River that would follow him for the rest of his life as his signature song. The album itself was one of the top-selling albums of 1962 and 1963 and included his versions of other Oscar-winning songs such as Three Coins in the Fountain, It might as well be spring and never on Sunday. Because he was the lyricist of one of the songs on the album, Johnny Mercer was getting a big royalty check from it and the boost to his career he had desperately been seeking.
1: Moon river Wider than a mile I'm crossing you in style Someday, oh, dream maker, you heartbreaker, wherever you're going, I'm going your way. Two drifters off to
2: see the world,
1: there's such
2: a lot of words.
1: We're after the same rainbows and Waiting round the bend, my Huckleberry friend Going, I'm going your way to drifters off to see the world. There's such a lot of world to see. We're after that same. My Huckleberry friend.
0: This was Johnny Mercer's third Oscar, putting him alongside Harry Warren, Sammy Kahn, Jimmy Van Heusen, Ray Evans, and Jay Livingston as three-time Oscar-winning songwriters. Surely someone was going to break this tie soon and win Oscar number four. Harry Warren was still writing songs, but it looked like his best years were behind him as song styles in the 1960s were not suited for him. So hopefully one of the other four will get that elusive fourth Oscar soon. The winning ways of Mancini and Mercer continued to the Grammy Awards six weeks after the Oscars. They won Song of the Year for Moon River, and Mancini picked up three more Grammys for Best Arrangement, Best Soundtrack Album, and Record of the Year. He lost out on the Album of the Year award for his score at Breakfast at Tiffany's, and I doubt anyone will say that Judy Garland's live Carnegie Hall concert recording didn't deserve that award. So, Henry Mancini was the toast of the movie and music industries in 1962. A composer had not received so many accolades for one work, and certainly, it could have created a lot of pressure for him. But after finding immediate success after writing the Peter Gunn theme, winning so much for Breakfast at Tiffany's was not too stressful. Mancini was happy that he could command more money per picture, up from $12,500 to $15,000, which was a fortune for a composer in the 1960s. Mancini's partnership with Blake Edwards was going to present him with a chance to make more history for songs nominated for the Oscar in 1962, and we'll learn more about that and the other songs on the list on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. I've enjoyed every episode so far, but I really, really appreciated sharing this one with you. So much great information about these nominated songs, and I'm sure the next episode will have so much more compelling stories to share with you. If you like what you've been hearing on the Best Song podcast, and even if you haven't, please feel free to send me comments or questions via email to jeffswim at AOL.com. I had so much fun singing along with you on this episode. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.